Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning, church family. It's good to have each of you here, whether you're here in person or joining us online. I want to say welcome. Uh, my name is Devin. I'm the lead pastor here at Brian. And as always, it is an absolute honor for me to be here doing what it is that I get to do. I was doing some reading this week, and I came across an article that talked about Search Factory. Search Factory is an Australian-based marketing firm, and they wanted to gather some data about how often people are Googling unique or strange things. Let me give you a few examples. From their research, here's what they found. Why did I get married 40,500 times? Here's one for you. How to ask a guy out. Only 14,000. I feel like if they would have Googled that before, maybe they would have found a better spouse. I don't know. How to mend a broken heart. Many of you have been there. How to have an affair, 5,400. I don't think it's that complicated. It's a bad idea. How to get away with murder, 1,900. Somebody found out, I see. How to hide a dead body. That's an interesting, curious progression, isn't it? From why did I get married to, okay, what are we going to do about the body here? From marriage to murder. The reality is, we live in a confusing world. And oftentimes, Google is what we turn to. I was going to joke that I compiled these from our staff search histories, or that whenever you click on a link in our e-newsletter, it automatically downloads your search history. But uh, that's not the case at all. This was just a, a random sampling But life is confusing, and confusion abounds. God, why did I work so hard and invest so much of my time only to see my efforts fail? God, why did I invest it all just before that crash? God, why did I pour into that person only to see them walk away from the faith? 
God, why do I still struggle with that sin? God, why? Why did you give me the gift of grandchildren and then lead the family to the other end of the country? Why? You know, I can remember about 10 years ago, which is amazing because it's not that long. 10 years ago, going on a personal retreat to get some time to to think and to pray. And I sat alone in a tremendous, ornate, beautiful Gothic cathedral. This was back in the day when they just trusted people and gave you the, the keys to the front door. So I was there by myself in the middle of the night, praying and calling out to God, wrestling in the midst of all of this beauty and grandeur, wrestling with this question, why? And at the time, the question that I was wrestling with was, why, God, won't you give us children? We had finally found financial stability. Being a student is hard. We had some financial stability. We had a home. We had a nursery ready to go. And we had tried everything. Nothing was working. You know, we had people, God bless them, they all meant well. They're like, have you tried doing it this way? And you're like, yes, yes, please. We've tried everything. I understand physics and biology. Thank you very much. But I can remember sitting there, and if I went back, I could find the exact seat and say, saying to God in that moment, why? I was confused. I felt like I had learned the lessons maybe that God wanted to teach me. I felt like we were waiting in dependence and walking in faith. But I was stuck on the why. It wasn't until years later that we finally sensed and saw God's plan and he answered that through the beauty of adoption. And I don't say that to in any way present myself as a model of one who waits well. But I know that in that season of waiting, of confusion, that it became apparent very early that all we had was Christ. And even if we never heard the little pitter-patter of feet running through the house, even if our house was unusually clean and tidy and quiet, and God withheld this gift from us, that somehow in him we would have enough. Very few of us can wait well. Very few of us handle confusion well. You see, these periods of waiting, of longing, of desire, of of confusion can be used by God, as we've talked about, to lead us closer to Him so that we actually see that He is what we need, that we actually gain a sense of His all-sufficiency Or these seasons can be used by Satan to draw us away, to harden our hearts and dull our affections for Christ. You're going to wait. The question is how. You're going to face seasons of confusion. The question comes, what will you do with that? 
And so today from the book of Habakkuk, I want to look at the path of confusion to clarity. In this book that we're studying, we see a prophet who is wrestling, who is waiting. And in the chapters and in the section that we're going to look at today, he is utterly confused. And God graciously moves him from confusion to clarity. And that is the path that God wants you to take as well. In just a moment, I'm going to have you stand. If you have your Bibles, you can start turning there to Habakkuk because sometimes it hides. And let me give you a little bit of context for this book. Habakkuk was written around the year 600 BC. Habakkuk is a prophet. And this is a unique book of the Bible because typically when prophets are called, they're called to go and give a message. So like, go to the Moabites, go to the Assyrians, go to the Babylonians, go to Judah, go to, go to Israel and proclaim these words. Here we have a prophet who's wrestling, who's waiting, who is confused, and God graciously gets down and says, I'm after your heart. So let's talk. It's a dialogue with God. And it opens in chapter 1 with, with Habakkuk wrestling with How long, oh Lord? How long is this going to keep going on? I don't know if I can take anymore. Wickedness is everywhere. And it seems, God, like you don't even hear the cries of your people. Evil has triumphed. And it seems like you don't even see the injustice. The law is paralyzed. Your law is doing nothing in our midst, God. How long? That's his first complaint. And God's answer is very God-like. God doesn't give Habakkuk everything that he could ever imagine. What he gives him instead is a reminder. He says to the prophet who is waiting, who is wondering, who is struggling, he says, I am doing something in your day that you would not believe even if I told you. You need to walk by faith. You need to trust in me, God says. Habakkuk's like, okay, I can do that. Give me more. What's going to happen? And God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians. The Chaldeans are going to bring about judgment on Judah. And the prophet's like, oh my goodness, God, are you sure? Something doesn't really make sense here. Maybe I didn't hear you. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you don't understand who the Babylonians actually are because the Babylonians were wicked and evil and violent and brutal and efficient at all of the above. But God is not unaware. He is not ignorant and he has not missed this. In chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, he, God recounts the evil brutality, the perversion of the nation of Babylon. He is well aware of their violence and what it is that they will bring. And that is God's answer. I'm doing something that is far greater than you can imagine. I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring about judgment on Judah. Which raises a host of questions, doesn't it? 
With that, I want to invite you to stand as I read verses 12 through 17. That is the context here. Now, God is God has shared his answer. He has acknowledged the brutality. And Habakkuk responds with this. This is the word of the Lord. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. He, he brings but the Babylonians, all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his nets and makes offerings of his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. Understandably here, I want you to notice that Habakkuk is confused. He calls out to God and God says, okay, I've got this. I'm doing something greater than you could ever imagine. I am bringing about judgment on the wayward nation of Judah. And by the way, the, the judgment is coming through the Babylonians. His confusion is encapsulated in verse 13. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked... Swallow up the man more righteous than he. How can you use a wicked nation to judge another nation that's slightly less wicked? This, understandably, is confusing. The nation of Israel and Judah were God's people. And here God says, I'm going to use a foreign evil entity that worships false gods to bring about judgment. Yes, Judah had problems. Habakkuk was well aware of this. But really, God, you're going to use the Babylonians? And so he is confused. It can be hard to wrap your mind around why and how God works and moves. Why, God, you ask, did I give years of my life in training for ministry only to do nothing with it? Why, God, did you let us paint the nursery only to lose the baby? Why did you let me move into that new house and then find out that my job was being removed, was being cut? Why, God, have you given me these desires only to see them come to nothing with no outlet and no opportunity? 
Why, God, did you, did you put this car in my lap only to find out that it's a lemon? And it costs more to maintain than if I would have just bought a better and newer one. Why, God, did I get cancer as soon as I retired? Why, God? This doesn't make sense. Well, sometimes God in his glory and sovereignty can be hard to understand. And really, we should expect as much. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We are finite, created beings. We should expect that God will work and move. We should expect that our will and our desires will butt up against God's. He is the sovereign king of all creation, and you and I aren't. We should expect this, and yet, it can still be confusing. And here, the prophet is struggling. How could you do this, God? How could you use a wicked nation to judge another nation? Habakkuk is confused. But as God answers, he gains clarity. From confusion to clarity. We see this starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, what I want to do here is to offer you three steps, very simply, of a path from confusion to clarity. Here's the first step. Here's the first step that Habakkuk took and the first step that you and I need to take in our confusion. Look to God. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The prophet says this, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The first thing that he does is he looks to God. He uses the metaphor here of a guard or a, a, on top of a watchtower whose only job is to look out at what's coming, is to see what's happening out in the field of battle. He says, just like a watchman goes up to the top of the tower and keeps his eyes open, I'm going to take my place here and I'm going to look to you, God. Where do you look when you're feeling confused? He doesn't ask Jeeves. That's what they did in the old days. He doesn't Google it. He doesn't allow the negative voice of his long-dead father to still negatively influence him. What does he do? He looks to God. He positions himself to wait on God, to, to hear from God. He looks like a watchman on top of a tower. He looks to God. Where do you look in your confusion? Hmm? The bottom of a bottle? A new partner? 
a new church? Do you throw yourself into your work? Social media? Follow some influencers and thinkers that will help guide you in this? Where do you look when you're feeling confused? What is your instinctive reaction? Habakkuk here, he goes and he says, I'm going to be standing on this watch post and station myself on the tower. I'm looking to you, God. Man, we face so much confusion in our world today. Confusion around every topic. From the family, to gender, to relationships, to just identity as a whole. Where do you look when you're feeling confused? The path from confusion to clarity begins when you look to God. Whether it's through simple obedience, I don't know the the end of this story, God, but I know that your word tells me to behave like this, to focus on this, to anchor my heart in this. I'm going to do it. Maybe it comes through godly friends that you open yourself to and you allow to speak truth into your life. Maybe it comes in what you're meditating on, what you're thinking about. You must look to God first. That's step number one. You look to God, and here's the second step. You listen. To God. You'd think that that would be implied or expected or perhaps even obvious, but such is not the case. Because we can so called look to God, spend time in His Word, we can come out to a good Bible teaching church, but still be influenced more by the voices of our culture than by the voice of God. So we look to God and then we listen to him. Look at the text here. The prophet pours his heart out to God and look at chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. When you speak or when you ask, when you look to God, You have to listen to him. Here, God says, write this down on a tablet. They think of not this kind of tablet, right? But like this kind, chisel. You see, in the ancient world, writing on a tablet, it's obviously exhausting and time-consuming. It's very inefficient. They had other means of writing literature and the most common in the ancient world is ostracon, little fragment and shards of clay pots, right? Because clay pots were everywhere. They would break all the time and you could just practice your writing. We see ABC series all the time. Children practicing essentially the alphabet. Little notes of groceries and so forth. There was papyrus from the papyrus plant. There was vellum, animal skin that had been scraped and prepared But God says, no, I want you to write this down on a tablet. 
Because I want you to understand this. I want you to listen to me. And I want the hearers that come to listen to me. When you are confused, and you come to God, and you say, God, I have all these issues, all these tensions, all these problems. Here's the question for you. Do you listen to him? Or do you just talk at him and move on with your day? Do you listen to his word? Now, I recognize that God's word doesn't have what to do when your grandkids move across the country and you miss them. I haven't found that verse yet. I recognize that in scripture, there's nothing here about which job you should take. The one that's going to pay more or the one that's going to be less stress. But God's word is sufficient. It has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And rather than give us specifics on every conceivable situation that you and I could ever face, he gives us these promises and these principles. He has given us more than enough. So we look to him first And then we listen to him. What kind of person ought you to be as you wait in a season of confusion? God's word has absolute clarity for you there. Why should you trust God in the season of waiting, in the season of confusion? Well, God's word has much for you there. So he looks to God, he listens to God, and finally, his third step is this, he leans on God's promises. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. God says this, write those down on tablets, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. What God is saying here, God does not give the prophet in his wrestling and in his confusion an absolute play-by-play of how the next four decades, five decades are going to go in light of the Babylonian captivity. God doesn't say, listen, you've been a good prophet, right? You're one of my, my, my star students. Your family is going to be safe in the hardship that's going to come, and, and I'll bring judgment over here. God doesn't say, listen, you don't need to worry about it. Here's how everything's going to work out. God offers him a promise. And the promise is that even if God's answer seems to take long, even if it seems to be delayed, you can count on it and trust it. This is all based on the character, the faithfulness of God. He looks to God. He listens to God. And he leans on God's promises. Lean not on your own understanding. Habakkuk. You're looking around at the world and all you see is confusion and injustice. But I'm doing something in your world that you would not believe even if you were told. And although it may seem to take a while, although it may seem to be slow, I will bring it to pass. 
You see, we are very quick to forget the faithfulness of God. How often have we read, if you grew up in church at all, and you, you read or you hear a sermon from the Old Testament, and you're like, what is wrong with these people? How did they not get it? I mean, come on. You just saw the ten plagues. Seriously? And you're all fretful and worried? You saw the Red Sea deliverance? God provided manna? Your shoes didn't wear out for 40 years? You see all of this provision from God, and then you come to the promised land, and you see these other nations, and you get all panicky and flustered and, and frantic. What is wrong with these people? Oh, here's what's wrong with them. They're just like me. How often in your own life have you seen and tasted that the Lord is good? That he provides? That he was with you? That he strengthened you and what you thought would break you has only served to refine you. And then a new situation comes about and you're like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Surely this is the one time in all of human history that the sovereign, all-powerful God is going to let somebody down. We are quick to forget, aren't we? This is why we need to be reminded daily of the promises of God. And when I say the promises of God, I'm not talking about vague, empty kind of prosperity gospel garbage that says if you just give enough, if you just do enough, if you just have enough faith, then everything's going to be amazing in your life and you'll have all kinds of money and power and influence and health and success. And, and that stuff is empty. Because God offers you something better, something real. He says, whatever you walk through, I will be with you. He says, I will be like a shepherd to you. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, lift your head. I have called you by name. I know that you're mine. And I will not let you go. He comes to you and he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He comes to you and he says, it doesn't matter what you walk through. I am preparing a place for you so that where I am, there you can be also. These are the promises that sustain us that we hold on to. So it doesn't matter. You may not get the specifics from God about whatever it is that you're wrestling with, whatever it is that's confusing you, but you have something even greater. You have his promises to walk with you, to be with you, to strengthen you, and finally to keep you to the end. That's a promise that you can lean on. And this is exactly where God goes next. I want you to look and pay special attention to verse 4. Because here we have a famous verse 
that's found three times in the New Testament. Listen to these words spoken by God. Behold, his soul is puffed up. That is the Babylons. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This verse is referenced three times in the New Testament, twice by Paul and once by the writer of Hebrews. In Galatians 3 verse 11, Paul is is writing about what's called justification, being made righteous. We've got a problem. And the problem is that you and I are exactly like Judah and exactly like Babylon. We are sinful. We are not righteous. There is none righteous, the Bible says. Not even one. And you may sit here and hear me say that and push back on me. And say, well, I might not be perfect, but I'm not unrighteous. Yes, you are. Because every one of us have failed God's standard. To be righteous means to be just and to to walk and live in accordance with God's law. We have failed. God says, do not lie, and we lie. Let's be honest. God says, do not lust in your heart at all. We do. God says, be patient and gentle and caring. And there are moments where we knock it out of the park. But let's be honest. There are moments when the only thing stopping us from doing something real stupid is that brilliant bumper sticker that we got on the back of the car. (laughs) The problem is that just like Judah, just like Babylon, we are unrighteous. So what hope could there be? If judgment is coming on Babylon and then judgment is going to come on Judah, what is this? Just an endless cycle of death and judgment? No. Because the righteous shall live by faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, we read this. It is evident, Paul says, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. We are not and cannot be made righteous by works. Whether it be works of the law, as in the Old Testament scriptures, and following them meticulously, you cannot be saved by the works of the law in any sense. Even if it's some vague evangelical spiritualism where you're like, I know what I'm supposed to do. The law of evangelicalism says I'm supposed to do my quiet times. I'm supposed to show up to church. I'm supposed to give. I'm supposed to serve. You are not saved by those works. You are not saved by any religious works, whether that be with a veneer of Christianity or that's in Islam or that's in in Buddhism. It doesn't matter. You and I cannot be saved by works of the law. No one can be justified and made righteous that way. It's not by works of the law. It is by faith. Faith in who? Faith in in what? Faith in crystals or angels or some kind of new age spirituality? No, on this the Bible is clear. 
that we can be made righteous through faith in Christ. In Christ alone. Because there was only one who was righteous. There was only one who had a surplus of righteousness that he could impute or deposit into our account. What we lacked, which is righteousness, he graciously gifted to us. This is what makes Christianity, the true Christianity of the Bible, such incredible news. That it's not about you. You're the reason you're in this mess. It is through faith in Christ. Habakkuk learned this lesson. He leaned on this promise and he was looking ahead. And every sacrifice prescribed in the law, every offering was always a a picture of what was to come. That somehow in this moment, this animal sacrifice was playing the role of substitute and our sin could be imputed to it. But it was never enough. Because year after year, there was always another sacrifice. And how do you know if the lamb that you provided was really good enough? It was the best you had, but it wasn't perfect. We are saved not by looking ahead, but by looking back to Jesus. The perfect sacrifice. And what this means is that life can be yours. That forgiveness can be yours. That hope can be yours. That righteousness can be yours. How? How, Devin? How? Through faith, the righteous shall live. Not by works, not by their efforts, but by faith. In Jesus, the righteous one. This is the promise to lean on above all promises. Because how do you know that he will be with you whatever you walk through? How do you know that he will sustain you through whatever trial? How do you know that he is still good even in the confusion? How do you know? Because the one who gave his life to make you righteous and by his power was offered you new life and has a deposit in you, the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your inheritance and eternal life, the God that has written this story over you, he can be trusted. You trust him for your eternity, you better believe you can trust him for your today. This is the fundamental question that you need to find clarity on. How will you ever be accepted by a holy and righteous God? It is only through faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Jesus is the answer out of the confusion. So look to him. Listen to him. Lean on his promises. I wish, church, that it was as simple as, 
I just preach a stellar sermon and you come up and you pray one time and it's like, oh my goodness, all of my cares have been casted on the Lord. And everything is actually super easy now. I wish I would have done this last week. But the reality is this is a daily, if not hourly journey. Because we are prone to forget. That's why we need to remember. That's why we need to recount. That's why we need to sing the songs that we sing. That's why we come to church weekly. That's why we read God's word and pray so that we can remember. There are so many voices vying for your attention. There are so many places to look for answers. There are so many things that you can lean on in hard times. But see the path from confusion to clarity. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus and lean on his promises. Let me pray, church, that that would be so. Father, there are those here who have been trusting in their works for their justification, for their righteousness. I pray that you will make the futility of that pursuit clear to them. That they would let go of holding on to their works and reach out for you by faith. Jesus, you are the righteous one who gave your life to make us righteous. And now you invite us to respond with faith, with trust and belief. Father, for those who are here who are going through an especially confusing season, I pray. I pray that they will lean on your promise. That you would strengthen them. That you would sustain them. That you would speak peace and hope into their hearts. All of which is based on who you are. Draw their eyes and our eyes to the cross, I pray. For we ask this in the name of the righteous one, our Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.